there's five-year-old Glenn, the big one. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to take some of these. And then a whole series of little Glens all the way through high school. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. This is a fiesta. <laughs> it's like a shrine to you, Glenn. <laughs> yep, that's John talking to my mum. A potentially explosive situation. There are some great pictures of little Glenn up on the website now if you're interested. I don't think anyone needs to see those. You've got to have some skin in the game, Glenn. <laughs> this is our final episode. So we're trying to wrap it up on a good note. So we do talk with Glenn's mum, Helen, but we've got other things to get to before that. And first we need to do this thing. How do I be a man? Is it with a firm hand shake? To stare a man in the eyes until one of us shatters. From Stuff and Bird of Paradise Productions, this is He'll Be Right, a six-part podcast series about how to be a modern man. I'm Glenn McConnell. And I'm John Daniel. We're going to talk about growing up, but we're going to start by looking at rites of passage, the kinds of ways that we move from childhood into the adult world, from boyhood to manhood. Just talking to you about this, you seem worried that we lack a kind of framework for being men, a sort of anchoring identity. Yeah, maybe this is particularly a Pākehā thing. We've talked about it, my concern that we're increasingly on our own as individuals in a society that pushes a very narrow definition of what it looks like to be a successful man. I think that because we're social creatures, we want to be part of a group or else it's easy to feel lost. To fit in and stand out in the group, we need to be successful and that success is a job and relationship and increasingly money. It's always been like that, hasn't it? A feeling of expectation that men be the breadwinner? It used to be that we had these pillars to an existence. Family, community, church. Institutions that helped us understand our role. That gave us a broader, stronger base for identity. Maybe I'm just bad at social media, which is where all this stuff happens now, but even that excludes a sense of transmission across the generations. Unless grandchildren showing grandparents how to work Zoom accounts. I don't think there's any real sense of initiation into broader society. So we talked to Sean Mallon, an anthropologist at Te Papa, expert on Polynesian culture and author of a recent book on Samoan tattooing, Tatao. And he pushed back on some of your views. Yeah, he did, and and we'll get to that. But first I asked him about why we still use some of these old-fashioned formulas in the modern world. I think that's what keeps uh, rites of passage and the rituals associated within them alive, is that they do give us that power to enhance our our identity within a group of similarly-minded people, you know? That's why they're so universally important, even though they're very distinct to different places and cultures. So some of these things are obvious. We celebrate moments that mark life transitions, like birth, marriage, death. But why does something like Samoan tattooing get taken up by people all around the world? I think there's a lot of non-Samoans and there's people in Europe who, in America, in the tattooing scene, who really gravitate towards Samoan tattooing and other indigenous forms, quite often because they're tattooed using indigenous tools. And it seems like people have written about it's a yearning for something that's more pure and closer to nature and less industrialised or less mechanical. Um, even though there's engineering and mechanics involved in these tools. And that's something that does something for a lot of non-Samoan people. It doesn't necessarily mean they're trying to be Samoan, but they are attracted to connecting to something that's 
uh, pre the mechanized industrial world, you know, something that's closest to the origins of man. Sean makes the point that many people today like to think of Samoan tattooing as something that's passed down from generation to generation unchanged, a pure version of a traditional art form. But really, the cultural context for it has always been evolving because of all kinds of influences, external and internal, to Samoa. In the late 1800s, mid-1800s, just as Christianity was taking hold in Samoa, the Samoan tattooing process was described as a rite of passage. So groups of young men in the Samoan elite, usually a chief's son and his friends, would be tattooed and um, people would bring fine mats, um, gifts, and there'd be a lot of prestige associated with the ceremonies of separating out these men from the community and guiding them through the process of being tattooed. And what that would mean is that they would be able to come out of a process and reincorporate themselves into the community with new responsibilities and a new social status. And in the 19th century, uh, much of that status was associated with the idea of the warrior. You know, they, they would become warriors, but they'd also become recognised as ceremonial attendants for um, important ceremonies like um, the serving of kava, other chiefly meetings, all kinds of things that were central to ceremonial life in Samoa. So that process had some stakes to it. When you came out of a tattooing process, that group of young men would enhance the status and mana, if you like, of the village, their families, and it, their reputation would be known you know, throughout the district, throughout the community and in other communities. But if they failed the process or didn't complete their tattoo, they would be seen as lacking courage and they would you know, greatly bring down the reputation of their families themselves and, and the group. So in that sense, in the 19th century, it would fit what... Uh, anthropologists might call a rite of passage because you have that separation of them out from the community where they undergo the ritual, their transition through the process and their reincorporation into society with a different role, different set of responsibilities. But in the years following the arrival of Christianity, it seems like the significance of Samoan tattooing as a rite of passage shifted. In fact, it seems to have dropped off massively. But outsiders were still invested in the idea, the romance of the sacred ceremonial rite. And in 1923, an American called Robert Flaherty comes to Samoa to film one of the earliest documentaries ever made, called Moana. The film footage actually features a Samoan tattooing ceremony, and it has intertitles that state things like, you know, Samoan tattooing is a rite of passage that every young man must undergo and it's very dramatic and talks about the pain and everything. But then you see group shots of men dancing and hardly any of the men have got tattoos. Apparently the documentary makers had to pay the guy who got a tattoo. That's right. So Flaherty, who's made his name with Nanook of the North, a story about an Inuit man and his family living in the Canadian Arctic, has turned up with a set of ideas about Samoa and its people and he's heavily invested in that being the case. He's got tons of camera equipment. He's moved his wife and child down there for the duration. And it's 1923, so he's not just getting on a plane. Exactly, but it seems like when he gets there, Christianity has changed the way Samoans live to the point where in many ways they're very similar to his audience. And that isn't going to get people paying to see his film. So he manipulates the reality of the situation to suit the story he wants to tell. 
basically he's spreaking a product. Yeah, selling ideas to people about the way the world is. That's something that really takes off in the 20th century. That whole thing about pink is for girls, blue is for boys, it looks like that was something that American clothes shops managed to sell people around the same time. That's right. Previously, kids just wore white because it was cheap and easy to wash, and you could reuse the same clothes for sons or daughters. But if you can convince people this is how they should be, you can make a dollar or two. And now it's so ingrained in our thinking, it's crazy. Anyway, by the late 20th century and early 21st century, as Samoans moved overseas, the significance of Tatao changes again. Sean says anthropologists now think that in the 21st century, while tattooing still has a ceremonial purpose, particularly in Samoa itself, it's also about symbolising your identity to other Samoans as well as outsiders. I remember asking some Samoan guy at a festival once, why are you um, tattooed? What's the meaning of your peta? What is the meaning of your tatau? And he just looked at me as if I was weird and said, it means I'm Samoan. I was expecting him to give me something a bit deeper. <laughs> Sean says an Auckland University study of Samoan men in New Zealand revealed that even though some of them had tattoos, all of them, old and young, felt that the most important marker of who they were as men was their ability to look after and provide for their families. Again, arguably, that would have always been the case. But the interesting thing is that even now, when a tattoo is something you buy, people still want to feel that connection to the old ways. He says one of New Zealand's best-known practitioners of tatau has a small studio in Auckland and it can get pretty tight when everyone wants to share that significant moment. He has to chase people out of his waiting room because when someone comes in to get a, an arm piece or a chest piece, the whole family comes along and sometimes they bring fine mats or bottles of whiskey and cigarettes and things because they're trying to ritualise something that you'd think would just be a straightforward commercial transaction. So he's saying, oh, I've got other clients coming. Can you please make room in my waiting room? Because people are all coming along to see this person through a transition. So it's funny how the client's trying to create an event or a ritual around something that we may, from the outside, think, pay your money, get a tattoo. It's amazing what people do to get what they need out of something, you know, socially or culturally. And that's where you get the feeling that there might be a need that's not being met in New Zealand. You don't really have access to that depth of culture and the kind of reassurance it gives you around identity. Maybe I'm in traditions, I don't know. Just for an example, when I was living in France, my best friend over there gave me a knife. It's a symbol of friendship where he's from. And when he gave it to me, there was this little symbolic superstition. He made me give him some money, just a coin, so that the blade wouldn't cut the bonds of our friendship. And I carry that knife with me all the time. And when I use it, I inevitably think of him and our friendship. And I love that. It makes me feel connected to him and his culture. And I would love to have something like that here. Like, I wanted to give him something back, but I couldn't think of anything. Maybe it's just me. So what did you do? Look, I thought about giving him some greenstone, but that felt like a bit of a culture rort. So I just gave him a book and some wine, which felt inadequate. But Sean says we do have these traditions. They're just so obvious, we don't see them anymore. I think there's a lot of ritual and rites of passage within Western, or for want of a better term, European and other non-Samoan cultures that are just as valuable and do a tremendous amount of work in the same way as Samoan Tatao does. Like what? Well, they're sort of hiding in plain sight. Things like weddings, 
um, the symbolism and garments you wear at weddings, from a wedding ring through to the headdress, the dress, what the men wear, those are very strong symbols that are often, some of the garments are kept long term to symbolise that moment. Okay, sure, weddings. But even they aren't quite what they used to be. There are all kinds of things, like getting a driver's licence. i better put that on my to-do list. And also the first day of school, first day of a new job, first time you vote, moving out of home, maybe going on an OE. Well, that one might be on hold for a while. OK, there are lots of firsts, but they feel more administrative than spiritual. I guess there's being allowed to drink alcohol, but even there the culture is arguably not great. I mean, you might get the keys to the car at a certain age and then a yard glass on your 21st. Is that really setting you up for the important things in life? Uh, You're quite dark on this, aren't you? But remember what Sean said about his son and that bus trip? You wouldn't think of it as something important, but it is. My son, he's in year 13. He's been catching the school bus to school in Kilburnie. It's a 45-minute journey. But he wrote a short essay for his NCEA about the backseat of the bus and how you graduate through the bus... And that, it's sort of like an extended rite of passage where you work your way through, and you, but it establishes a picking order, just like the All Blacks do in their oh, bus. But used to. I don't think they do anymore. So the All Blacks had a senior's backseat too. It can't have been as hardcore as a Wellington College school bus, where it was rumoured, although I can't actually remember anyone doing it, that they'd force juniors to run the gauntlet if they dared to sit at the back of the bus. It's interesting that they've shifted that. Yeah. Why, why did they do it? But they considered it unhealthy, I think, in the end, because you then ended up with sort of you know guys who came in who who hadn't played or you know whatever who were kind of slightly terrified of the whole mythology of the thing, and it was curbing their natural instincts, and they felt that they had too much to live up to, and you know, in a team, surely you're kind of all together. Yeah, and I think that's really good to hear, but it also shows us how these things that we cling to as traditional rites of passage shift as our values and the values of the communities we live in change. So I understand they have a leadership group. It's not just the captain and the coach. People are are more democratic now in the way they want to deal with problems and challenges within team environments. So yeah, I can get it that the backseat of the bus might not be the, the way to handle that. Even if it's not Tika for the All Blacks anymore, Sean still says that for his son, working his way through the schoolboy hierarchy has been useful. When I think about my son on the bus and the psychology of dealing with banter in that space, his growth as someone who can give banter, handle it, and deal psychologically with the picking order on that bus has been really useful. I sort of feel like I'm revealing something of his private life here, but, you know, it's it's helped him grow as a person mm. going through that. And, you know, the word that gets thrown around a lot today is resilience. I think that's really helped him and other boys too who've had to go through that ritualistic... <laughs> it's not hazing, but it's like, you know, working your way through, sitting through that every day for 45 minutes to and fro from school. And even running it straight too... If you haven't heard of it, this is the Run It Straight Challenge. One person... And let's face it, from what we can see on the internet, almost always a young man... ...running straight at another, who has to tackle them. We're not suggesting you try this at home, but it is a thing. Basically a supercharged, gladiatorial version of Bull Rush. Popular in schools at break time, although probably not popular with the teachers. I'm wincing just thinking about it. But young men like finding ways to prove themselves. Oh, God. (laughs) 
it's not just the measure of how tough you are and how much you can take a hit. It's also about judgment and making good choices about what you do and don't do and how you reveal yourself on that court running down at some guy who's 20 kilos heavier than you. I think those are all life lessons that those contexts force you into a little bit. Because you've got to decide whether you're going to be a, a chicken or you're going to be brave and what the consequences of that are for your group and where you sit. Yeah, of course these challenges don't have to be physical, although the fact that there are spectators raises the stakes. And we're back to courage. In this case, physical courage as a marker. I don't think you can get away from that. The fact is, life can be hard in lots of different ways, and we all have to grapple with that at some point. Whatever the specifics of the situation, I think at a given moment, everyone wants something tough to have to deal with, so that you can say, I'm ready for this, I'm prepared to take more responsibility for my own actions, and I guess the world constantly finds ways of offering us those difficult moments. Sometimes they're thrust upon us, and sometimes we seek them out. We may look to Indigenous societies as being some having that, that ritualistic side that we may feel we've lost, but when we look a little bit closer, the rituals are all around us that help us bind to each other or separate us and make us different from each other. And they're subtle, but they're often very, very powerful. Glenn, I remember you telling us you liked to make sure Bulrush was full contact when you were a kid. It's more fun with skin in the game, but to be honest, I was also a very speedy kid, so I didn't get pummeled too often. I think it also set us apart from the younger kids. We were bigger, braver, and prepared to deal with our own consequences. I wanted to find out more about your misspent youth, so I went straight to the source, your mum, Helen. Yeah, so John took a trip to my childhood home. And yes, there are quite a few school photos of me on the wall. There's five-year-old Glenn, the big one. Oh, I'm going to have to take some of these. And then a whole series of little Glens all the way through high school. It is like a shrine to you, Glenn. Throughout this series, I've been sceptical about how important it is for boys to have male role models, or if we place too much emphasis on how gender affects men. The reason I'm sceptical is because I grew up with, mostly, just me and my mum. I remember going to a Catholic school and a traditional boys' college, and that my upbringing was maybe a bit unusual. Friends would ask where my dad was at birthdays, and when I went to their houses, they'd be learning to go camping, or even skinning a possum with their dad. To me, that seemed a bit weird, a bit of a masculine cliché, but apparently I wasn't exactly normal either. I think it was a lot um, people telling me, like putting those expectations on me of have you shown him how to do these things? Does he have role models? Does he, oh, a lot of people used to think he was quite, don't take this the wrong way, Bubby, quite feminine. So he was a little bit, you know, dressed too well to be a boy and that type of thing. Did his hair and all these unheard of things for males. But yeah, it didn't really, bo- it bothered me a little bit, but Not really, because we were quite happy living our little lives, so, yeah. And you haven't really felt the need for any kind of father figures, have you? No, but you had a similar upbringing, and you did? Yeah, Mum and I were on our own from the time I was about three to ten or eleven. Then I got a stepfather. It's a whole other podcast. But by then I was at boarding school, and through those developmental years, in hindsight, I was drawn to strong male characters a rugby coach in particular, one or two good teachers. 
probably not one role model in particular, but a series of men who looked like they knew what they were doing, who I felt I could learn from. And in many ways, that's continued as I've got older, wanting to find people, men, I could look up to. I definitely looked up to people, women too. And I had my granddad and other men in my family who were a lot of fun, and they'd take me out fishing, although that didn't go well. But they taught me to play cricket. And, controversially, my granddad would let me use his barbecue, but he never let his daughters touch it. I had role models, sure, and although I didn't look for a father figure, my mum remembers me being a bit obsessed with my uncles. So when he was little, he used to latch on to my cousins. I don't know if you knew this, Glenn. So Lennox and Alistair used to spend a lot of time with him. They'd come watch his rugby games and, you know, made sure they bought him balls for his first and second birthdays. And they were always kind of around if he needed them, but... They weren't a major influence when he got older. When he got older, they were the ones trying to give him a yard glass for his 21st and buy him his first beers and stuff, which <laughs> he wasn't really into. So, But when he was little, they were around to, to kind of be those, those people. And then when my twin sister got her partner, Chris, he kind of kind of stepped in. He was like a male influence, but not one that guided, not one that taught him how to shave or have those manly chats or things. We I think we kind of skipped that whole whole awkwardness. I am so, so grateful we skipped those awkward chats. Although I grew up with a solo mum, it's not like we lived in some sort of isolation. Kids watch TV, they talk to friends, they pick up on the conversations adults have around them, and they go to school. My mum is a teacher. She's worked with kids from all different backgrounds and has noticed how gender expectations start to take shape from a very young age. Stereotyping the boys are a lot louder if they're with each other. So just thinking about the kids we, we've had at the moment, they are very boisterous, very loud, run around a lot screaming and shouting in their play. If another one of their peers that likes that is there. But if you take that child out of the equation, then they'll find, they'll happily play alongside the girls in a nice, quiet manner. So I'm not sure. It's hard to say. But when, if, if no one's observing them, it's like, that, oh, sweet, yeah. I can just do then whatever just I feel like. sit there being perfect little angels. And I mean, some of them will, in the dress-up corner, I remember this is years ago, I had a little boy who liked to wear pink tutu. But as soon as his dad came in to get him, he'd get reprimanded for it. He wasn't allowed to wear the pink tutu, but he loved wearing the pink tutu. I've heard other stories like that, or even seen boys really worked up, worried about what their dads would think. In contrast, not having my own father figure seemed sort of freeing. Everything has its ups and downs. It's not just dads pushing masculinity. Helen teaches three- and four-year-olds. They act without really calculating this stuff. So we have a thing where it's gender equality. So boys and girls get given the same opportunities as each other, but you can see the boys tend to move towards the diggers and the dump trucks and blocks building and knocking down the blocks, whereas the girls, when they're doing their block building, they tend to build enclosures and houses for dolls and put farm animals inside them. So their block building has a purpose, whereas the boys just build up and then knock them all down. You were a sandpit child, but you also used to push around buggies and always played with the girls. A bit of building, a bit of buggy pushing. I think that means I was just a really well-rounded preschooler. OK, Glenn, we're all friends here. No one's trying to break this manly facade you've got going on. 
but I was keen to hear more embarrassing stories from your mum. So I always remember walking down the street with him and he was holding my hand and one of my friends said to me, she had a son who was older and she said, oh, you're so so lucky he still holds your hand in public. And I was like, well, he will always hold my hand in public. So, but he didn't. He stopped holding my hand in public. So those, <laughs> those types of things, like, yeah, people did expect him to be able to do things. So this is a little off tangent, but the barbecue, he was... Dad always allowed him, my dad, to light the barbecue, light the fire, do things like that. But dad would never let me do it. So dad had those gender stereotypes where Glenn from 10, 11 was allowed to do those things because he was a boy. My family likes food and rugby. So they were pretty proud of my barbecuing skills as an 11-year-old. And there was also the day I ran onto the field of the Cacton with the All Blacks. So my sister won a competition. She thought she was going to get to do it. They actually needed a child. So he got to do it. So he ran the rugby ball out for the Bledsloe Cup and his principal saw it and was just so proud of him, put it on the school newsletter and everything. So it was like Glenn's big moment as an All Black. And the whole family was so proud of him and they reshare this memory on Facebook every single year. But I remember in the announcements that you know, they said this is Glenn McConnell running out of the football, the rugby, and he waved as, as you do to the camera, and he played hockey. So it was he wasn't even you know a big all black rugby playing fan. He was just this. How old are you? Ten, ten year old kid who has been. I think the biggest enjoyment with that was running out in front of the whole stadium and getting to. He got to be on the big screen and people saw him on TV. So. To everyone else in our family, it was Glenn was only chance to be an All Black, whereas to him it was just an exciting experience. That's so funny. Is it too easy to say that it kind of sums up the series? How's that? Just the gap between the social expectations that get set up and the lived experience of the person themselves. I mean, there's you doing this thing, but because it's taking place in public, everyone has a view and their perspective is quite different to yours. Your school and your family are like, here's Glenn rugby, look at him with the All Blacks. But you're like, here's me. Who cares about the rugby? I'm more into hockey. But media-wise, have you seen the big screen? I'm on national TV. I mean, of course. I was excited about an audience of, like, millions. Uh, But I'd also like to think that if we've learnt anything over this series, we've learnt that rugby absolutely is not the high point of masculinity. Hockey's just as brutal. Did I miss that bit? But also, there's modelling, making a six-part podcast where you have to talk about your feelings. That's pretty manly too. Stop it, Glenn. I'm going to cry. Is this the moment where we realise that we've been on this journey, this quest for modern masculinity, talking to all these different people, but in the end realising that all along the answer was inside us? You mean this is a Hollywood ending? Yeah, well, you said at the start that you were worried we were going to find there were lots of different ways to be a man, and that is pretty much what we found out. It's not that simple. I said that people are just people, and that maybe we thought too much about stuff like masculinity. But now I see these expectations are inescapable. If you easily fit into that kind of box, then it probably isn't much of a concern. But when you have to carve out a space for yourself, when you're pushing the boundaries or feel like the old norms no longer work for you, then it becomes a challenge. Yeah, I think all men feel pressure to conform in one way or another, and that can still be unwelcome. But the ones on the margins are doing the most work. I guess I'm thinking about trans people in the queer community, 
and they're helping reshape a lot of the culture around masculinity in a positive way. Te ao Māori is changing fast, but its focus on belonging, which is what pepeha are all about, is central to the culture. Always having a place to call home is very reassuring, even as other parts of Māori culture and masculinity change. Right. None of these things are static anywhere. There's an explosion of possibilities around how to be, but that also makes it hard to choose, to know what is the right fit. But at least there's now more than one right way to be. Because it's pretty clear that the old ideas around the stuff, that men had both the right and responsibility to run everything, that's just not going to work. You have to be prepared to move with the times, right? I like to think men here are going in the right direction. Mental health is still a real issue, but at least we're talking about it. The stigma around it is on the way out. And while we didn't talk to him, mainly because we had a lot of rugby in here anyway, I think John Kerwin's work on mental health has been absolutely crucial in the last couple of decades. And of course there are others too, literally saving lives by addressing their own vulnerability in public. And I was really encouraged by what we learned about how consent is being taught in schools and how domestic violence is also being approached by men in good faith. But there are still issues. There are men who don't like these changes. They miss the idea of the man of the house. They think they're entitled to it and to the top jobs and a whole lot else. And when they're not willing to move on, it gets messy. You wait, Glenn. You're going to get old. The kids are going to tell you you're irrelevant. It's funny for me now, nudging 50, when at your age I would have expected to be more in charge and instead feeling like, as a middle-aged white man... I'm getting a bit of a talking to from wider society. It's still good to be at the edge of your learning, though. I've got rogue hairs sprouting from my ears. I'm starting to make these noises when I sit down in chairs. I thought there'd be a bit more respect for my age, to be honest. So after all this, do you think that you qualify as a modern man? I'm trying, Glenn. I'm trying. What about you? I mean, I guess you are by definition. Well, I am a man, and I'm not elderly. But (laughs) do I tick all the boxes? Sporty and smart? Introspective and outgoing, rich and caring. (laughs) What are you doing? Don't beat yourself up. You don't have to be a superman. Surely the whole point has been that you don't have to tick any of the boxes. I guess it's hard to get away from that, you know, aspirational ideal. It exists even when you don't want it to exist. I know we don't need to tick the boxes, and how good has it been hearing from people pushing those expectations away? But I still worry what others think. I mean... This is the Instagram age. Yeah, social media is rubbish. Just stop it. It's not just social media. It's everywhere. I think the upside of getting older is that if you've done the work to keep engaging with the world on its terms, rather than expecting everything to come to you, and you keep doing the work on yourself, you care less about what people think and get to feel more confident. Good to know. So I'll find inner peace when I start going bald? Maybe we've all learned something. Anyway, that's it from us. Thanks for listening. Wait, is that it? What else do you want, Glenn? Endings are hard. I thought there might be something more profound. You have to make the next bit up yourself. While you're at it, can you make me a quiche? Hey, you can't keep running that gag. I see. Humble pie. They're dad jokes, Glenn. It's how I roll these days. Oh, let's cut it there. Kill Me Right is a Stuff and Bird of Paradise production. It was written and produced by me, John Daniel, and Glenn McConnell. Associate producer was Noel McCarthy. Editing and sound design by Andre Upston. And music by Anthony Tonin. 
Carol Hirschfeld is the commissioning editor for Stuff, and Patrick Crudson was the executive producer. This series was made possible by funding from New Zealand On Air. For more from the series, go to stuff.co.nz forward slash he'll be right. That's H-E-L-L be right. There you can listen to all the episodes and find links for subscribing on your favourite podcast app, plus a series of essays. Also, Snapchat guy Tom Sainsbury has made a brilliant series of short videos about modern masculinity. They're all on the website too. Thanks for listening.